Uh, Nick, so the Bank of Canada is raising interest rates to fight against inflation. The major banks are predicting a, a recession early next year. Things are looking pretty grim. Uh, how do Canadians feel about their own personal finances? Terrible, Michael, terrible. You know, we track this with, uh, with Bloomberg News on a regular basis. We ask a very simple question. Your personal finances, are they worse, better, or the same compared to a year ago? And the latest tracking that we've just released suggests that 47% of Canadians or almost one out of every two Canadians report that their personal finances are worse than last year. 13% say they're better. The rest say that they're the same. But the kicker is that this is a new record. What do we say? A new bad record. Mm. A new terrible record. Because we started tracking this in 2008. So this is the highest score for people reporting that their personal finances are worse off. It is higher than during the 2008 recession. Wow. It's higher than at the beginning of the pandemic. Remember before the checks started going out when people were not paying the rent and stuff like that? Mm. It's the, the numbers are worse than at that period of time. So we're in new territory when it comes to economic pessimism and how people feel about their personal finances. Mm. Well, welcome to another episode of CTV's Trendline podcast. I'm Michael Stittle. And I'm Nick Nanos. And Nick, let's let's dig into this a bit further. So uh, the Bank of Canada, again, as I said, they're raising interest rates to kind of tackle inflation and, and put a handle on this high cost of living for Canadians. But some argue it's it's pushing us into a recession. It, it, it seems sort of like a no-win situation for uh, the government. Listen to uh, Finance Minister Christian Freeland on this. The, the fact is that the government simply cannot compensate every single Canadian for every single additional cost imposed by elevated global inflation. If we were to try to do that, we would be pouring fuel on the inflationary flames. We would just be making the Bank of Canada's job harder and ensuring that inflation lasted longer and that rates went up even higher. So it's, it's pretty uh, blunt talk from uh, from Freeland. What do you make of that? I guess Minister Freeland is saying that the cupboard is bare. Don't mm. look for any help from the Liberal government. I don't know how that, I think the same Liberal government at some point or a number of points said, we've got your back, Canada. Well, I guess they no longer have the back of Canadians when it comes to dealing with this. Perhaps it's kind of like boiling the ocean, but it's too big. However, what's critical here is that People are struggling to pay the bills. People are worried about paying the rent, worried about the cost of groceries and food going up. And it looks like the federal government is not going to be able to help them. You know, it's it's fair game for any federal government to have that type of uh, policy. However, sometimes there are political casualties. So we shouldn't be surprised if the numbers for the liberals perhaps go down. We also shouldn't be surprised that the other political casualty could very well be Minister Freeland. Uh, because she will be the lightning rod and the lead spokesperson on uh, the government's position not to help Canadians uh, through this. And uh, as a result, uh, we know that there's always speculation about uh, liberal leadership at some point. The uh, well, I don't call it the phantom leadership, mm -hmm. but uh, <laughs> you know, so there could be a number of uh, there could be a number of political casualties, mm. including the the liberal government and also Minister Freeland. So I guess she's, she's she and the government have to hope that they can ride this out to 2025 so that there's a bit of a recovery. 
Uh, aside from from how Canadians feel about their own personal finances uh, and, and and keeping in mind predictions for a recession, how how do Canadians feel about the general economy for uh, for Canada? Quite negative. Quite negative. You know, when asked about whether they think the economy will get weaker or stronger in the next six months, a whopping sixty four percent, or almost two out of every three Canadians, believe the economy will get weaker rather than stronger, uh, and the stronger number is only at at around nine percent. So, people are buckling up for a potential recession. They don't know whether it could be a mild recession, which is what some in the Bank of Canada believe it will be. And we don't know how long it might be, but they're bracing themselves. Canadians are bracing themselves for bad news. So this is handing a lot of political ammunition, obviously, to uh, the Conservative Party. And and let's listen to what uh, Conservative leader uh, Pierre Polyev has to say. Liberal leader Mark Carney has said that inflation is domestically generated. So is the so has the current governor of the Bank of Canada. And now, after a half trillion dollars of inflationary deficits, the finance minister is pretending that she believes, like conservatives, that government spending is driving this crisis in the first place. Isn't it ironic that the solution to the problem the government will have to pursue? that wants to make life more affordable is to do exactly the opposite of what they have been doing for the last seven years. I There's a couple of things there. Uh, uh, he, he said global and, and Freeland has, you know, has, has said that this is a global issue. I, I don't know if that really, uh, if that's politically, if that's a good way to assuage uh, concerns from Canadians. And and also the, this kind of no one situation again, where the Bank of Canada is trying to raise interest rates, which could trigger a recession. Uh, how, 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 does, how does the Liberal government even respond to this? Well, I, I think what we didn't hear from Pierre Poiliev was, I was waiting for him to say, the Liberals, can't they just say they've seen the light, that spending <laughs> is not going to be the solution when mm-hmm. we have some sort of crisis or threat to our economy? Well, you know, this is uh, this is ready made for Pierre Poiliev. Uh, you know, he's built up a brand and it, it's it's a strong brand when it comes to a politician that Canadians trust on fighting inflation and the rising cost of living. So this is this is Christmas time for him. Uh, he'll be able to point out that the, the liberals are embracing policies that that they don't usually embrace because they're known as big spenders. Uh, and he also gets to say that, uh, you know, he was he's right. So I think uh, I think this will be an advantage for Pierre Poiliev and the Conservatives, because the reality is, is that the policy that the Liberals seem to be on, which is uh, not to do a lot of stimulus in order to get through whatever Canadians might have to deal with, uh, will not be popular with their progressive roots, won't be popular with the New Democrats, uh, for sure. And at the same time, it, it allow the Conservatives to attack the Liberals as being uh, inconsistent. Hmm. Uh, Nick, I want to move on to the public hearings and to the use of the Emergencies Act. This week was the first time we had actually heard from the Freedom Convoy organizers. Uh, Chris Barber uh, was the first uh, the first to testify. Uh, I know that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau will be, you know, is expected to testify uh, later this month. And and I'm I'm wondering if who might come out ahead here, the the Liberals. Uh, who are quite against the Freedom Convoy, obviously, and and Pierre Polyev, who who uh, supported the movement. Well, I think it's kind of like one of those choices where, for Canadians, choose your poison. Do you want to deal with incompetency or politics that you might 
uh, not like. You know, on the one side of the ledger, I'm sure the Liberals are hoping to talk about the Freedom Convoy because they think that it's a vote winner for them when it comes to motivating their core and talking about those issues. On the other side of the ledger, it's pretty clear that there is some incompetency, uh, some incompetency. And why don't we add to incompetency a little dash of partisan politics hmm. where, you know, it seems according to some of the reports that the Liberals wanted to advance a particular narrative related to the convoy uh, in order to, to win the public opinion war. I thought what was fascinating, because I was I've been following some of the testimony, was like one of the organizers going, We never wanted to block everything. And it was like, we showed up and the police told us to park in front of Langevin block or PMO, <laughs> I should say. Tell us to park in front of PMO, in mm -hmm. front of the House of Commons. And you know, it'd be like them saying, Hey, listen, when the cops tell you where to park when you're a protester, that's where you park. We never expected to be there. So yeah. there this 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 whole inquiry raises more questions than answers, but puts really an ugly spotlight on a whole bunch of things. You know, how governments try to take advantage of uh, situations to advance their political cause, how governments fail to respond properly, or how governments potentially over-respond uh, mm. to, to a situation. So it's, it's quite a mixed bag. So it sounds like we've moved far away from yeah, you know, the, the vaccine mandates and, and purportedly the, you know, the original uh, cause of, of, of the Freedom Convoy uh, movement. It's, it's, it's just become much, much bigger than that. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's become much bigger. And it's had to do with it's now deals with uh, motivation, motives and competency right now. The other thing, Michael, is that, you know, in our in our weekly poll, we ask Canadians their top national issue of concern still on any given day, between you know three to six percent Canadians say freedom is their top national issue of concern, and when I see that, I see that as code for individuals who are still into what the freedom convoy represented. Those individuals still believing that there's a problem in Canada, and those individuals that are still highly motivated behind those causes. Oh. Uh, Nick, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll look at some of the closest uh, Senate races in the upcoming U.S. midterms. Super. Uh, so, Nick, the U.S. midterms are fast approaching, and the Republicans only need one seat in the Senate to flip it, which could result in a, a lame duck presidency for, for Joe Biden. Uh, I want to go through a couple races, uh, beginning with Pennsylvania. I think for you know some Canadians who may not be paying too close attention, that's the one with Dr. Oz uh, versus uh, uh, Fetterman. What, what do you make of that race? Well, check out the trend line on this. It's basically uh, a dual uh, a duel to the finish between Fetterman and Oz, or Oz and Fetterman. Uh, Oz being the Republican, Fetterman being the Democrat. Uh, basically, forty-seven, forty-six. When we look at the, at the two of them and the and the trending on that front, um, and I think for the Democrats, they're hoping that they can pick this up. So this will be an interesting race to watch. We also know that Biden has gone to this particular, uh, uh, gone to this Senate race in order to to support. Uh, Fetterman. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, the president goes and it's not good news for Biden if he goes to a place and then they lose because mm. that means that there's no presidential coattails. But this is going to be a key one to watch potentially for the Democrats if they can pick it up. But, but still hard to tell. It's been an, an incredibly uh, ugly race. Uh, Fetterman suffered a stroke and Dr. Oz seems to have 
use that against him. Dr. Oz has been compared to the, uh, the snake oil salesman doctor from the Simpsons and, and Fetterman's own attack ads. Uh, and there's a ton of money being poured into this uh, campaign, obviously. Well, it's because, uh, you know, the Democrats believe that they can uh, pick it up and want to pick this up. And, you know, the and for the Republicans, if they want to have a chance at, at, at picking up the Senate, they have to hold. You know, it's kind of it's kind of like the political strategy to win. You got to hold what you've got and then pick up someplace. Hmm. So if the Republicans lose this, if Oz loses this race and they lose this Senate seat, that means they've got to find a Senate seat someplace else hmm. just to stay where they are currently. So Pennsylvania is one where the Democrats could pick up a seat and Nevada is one where they could potentially uh, lose one. Uh, that is probably the the closest race, I believe, that, that, that we might see. Yeah. Well, in Nevada, it's like an absolute, absolute tie, 46-46 between the uh, Republicans and the Democrats on that race. And, you know, this is this is one of the uh, districts that the Republicans have uh, have targeted and hope to pick up and, and could make a big difference. But, you know, the the thing is, is, you know, when we look at a lot of these races like Georgia is another uh, Senate race that the Republicans are hoping to pick up. But think of it this way, Michael, you know, in the House right now, in, in the House of Representatives, it's actually 50 50 with Vice President Camilla Harris casting the tiebreaker. Mm -hmm. And right now, the polls suggest that the Republicans could pick up maybe 10 seats in the House, which would give them control of the House. A lot of that on a crime agenda, where they're just hammering the Democrats on be, as being soft on crime. Mm -hmm. um, but the Senate is still uh, is still a toss up. So, you know, if we're if the trend, if today's trend continues to Election Day, uh, the Republicans will likely control the House of Representatives. But it's still too early to call whether there'll be a change in the Senate because some of these races are just like coin tosses. Why? Why is it so hard to to predict uh, some of these races? I mean, I think traditionally uh, pollsters in the U.S. have, have had a, quite a difficult time. Yeah, actually, you know, people criticize pollsters a lot. The pollsters in Canada have been doing quite well, but the pollsters in the United States uh, have had difficulties. One of the reasons, and this explains the difference between Canada and the United States, is that the voter turnout. Uh, in in Canada is higher, even though it's not great, it's higher than it is in the United States. And when there's a low voter turnout, you need to actually, when you're doing polling, you need to model out for who you think might show up. And this is where pollsters in the U.S. have had difficulty. They've had some significant misfires, for example, in Ohio, where, you know, at one point, I think uh, in the in the Clinton-Trump showdown in Ohio, uh, Clinton actually stopped going to Ohio because she thought that it was in the bag mm. and uh, she ended up losing uh, that state. And that was a, that was a critical state for Donald Trump to win. So there've been misfires. So a lot of it has to do with uh, pollsters in the United States, at least having difficulty with low voter turnout and trying to figure out who's going to show up to vote. But fortunately that problem hasn't happened in Canada, at least to the same extent. Wow. Uh, just quickly, Nick, uh, as you alluded to, it, it, the Republicans are expected to to take the to take the House, but uh, the Senate is still a toss up. What what will a, a lame duck presidency look like uh, if the Republicans take Congress? Well, first of all, the day after uh, the outcome of the midterm elections, that's when the presidential race realistically starts, because that will only be uh, two years off. Hmm. So the uh, 
if if as expected, the Republicans uh, have the upper hand in the House of Representatives, it means that they can effectively block anything that the, the Democratic presidency under Joe Biden want to advance. So they can, so, you know, that goes out the door. We also have to realize that traditionally, whoever the, whoever's in the White House, whichever party is in the White House, usually gets roughed up, hammered, whatever you want to call it in the midterm mm -hmm. elections. But it'll mean that if Joe Biden thought it was difficult before this to kind of pass legislation, he's going to in he's going to be in a whole new level of pain trying to advance his agenda assuming that the house uh is controlled by the republicans coming out of the midterms oh. uh nick i think that that's all for this episode uh, as, as always thanks very much thank you